Hi, this is Robert Cunningham, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church. We want to thank you for listening to this resource, and we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you. One quick word, though, before you listen. While we are honored to be a resource for you, we do want you to know that an online sermon is no substitute for congregational life. It's a good supplement, but what you need more than anything else is membership and involvement in a local church. If you are not a member of TCPC, I want you to know that listening to your pastor is far more valuable than listening to this. If you are a member of TCPC, I want you to know that joining us in worship on Sunday is far more valuable than listening online. So to everyone, we are encouraged that you have sought us out, but much more encouraging would be for you to seek out a local church community. That said, thanks for listening, and may God now bless you as you do. I, along with, I think many of you, have been um, following along on the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast series. If you haven't listened to it, I commend it to you, but uh, be prepared for a heavy dose of conviction because it's not just a critique of Mars Hill, but what has become of evangelical culture in America. Um, for those of you who don't know Mars Hill, um, it was a megachurch in one of the most unchurched cities of our nation, Seattle, Washington, and the pastor, leader of Mars Hill, and its movement is a man named Mark Driscoll. Many of you do know Mark Driscoll. Uh, perhaps many of you have benefited from his preaching and his writings. Um, he's an incredibly gifted mind, incredibly gifted tongue. There's no denying that, and because of those Gifts. What started as a small uh, church plant Bible study grew into a church with 15 locations in four states. This wasn't a multi-campus church, this was a multi-state church. And so every week, thousands and thousands would gather to hear him preach, and then hundreds of thousands, literally hundreds of thousands more, would then download his sermons throughout the week. And so when you look at Driscoll and his movement and Mars Hill from a worldly metric perspective, Mars Hill was a huge success. But when you look at it from the Beatitude perspective, Mars Hills proved to be a huge failure. The numbers were astounding, but the culture, the ethos was toxic. But here's what is so convicting. Driscoll built the movement and his brand on that very toxicity. His shtick was that American Christianity was weak and wimpy. And so I'm going to offer you a Christianity that is bold and strong and brash and even braggadocious. In his sermons, he yelled, he, he cursed, he mocked. And here's what's so sad. Christians ate it up, flocked to him as if they were craving an arrogant Christianity remade in the image of our arrogant culture. The story of Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill serves as an indictment on us, just as much an indictment on Driscoll himself. Well, Jesus here this morning with a rebuke to us, to us who value arrogance and are addicted to power, Jesus is here to commend to us what is scorned by the world. 
He is here to declare, blessed are the meek. Just like I've done with each beatitude, we're going to divide it in half and look at the kingdom posture and then the kingdom promise. Let's start with the posture. Blessed are the meek. So what is taking place within the flow of the Beatitudes is that we are now turning outward. The first two were introspective. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn their poverty of spirit. And so you've noticed the past two Sundays have been a heavy dose of self-reflection. But as I discussed when introducing the sermon series, the Sermon on the Mount is actually a very practical, application-driven sermon. However, Jesus does begin with introspection for a reason, because it is the foundation of his application. When I truly internalize my poverty of spirit, when I truly mourn over that poverty, it's going to produce a different type of person. And the most noticeable change is what Jesus is describing in our beatitude this morning. If you believe that you are poor in spirit, and if you mourn over that poverty of spirit, then you will become a person unmistakably marked by meekness. Now, like I have done with the previous Beatitudes, let me dispel a common myth about this one as well. When we think meek, we often think pushover. Uh, Someone without a backbone, unwilling to assert themselves. In short, we view it as the opposite of strength. This could not be further from the truth. In fact, in a moment, we're going to see that meekness is a form of strength. Meekness is a very bold and courageous form of strength. The reason we know that biblical definition of meekness cannot equate to a pushover is because the embodiment of meekness is, of course, Jesus himself. I think it's safe to assume that omnipotent power qualifies as strength. And the way he interacts with people is incredibly assertive. Our minds immediately go to him flipping the tables in the temple. Whenever we think about Jesus asserting himself, we only think about that episode, but we fail to appreciate how confrontationally assertive he is in nearly every interaction that he has. Consider the tender moment he shared with a woman caught in adultery. He rescues her with his famous, he who is without sin cast the first stone. They all leave. Jesus turns to her and says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, my Lord. And he says, neither do I condemn you. It's just this beautiful moment. But we ought to forget how he ends that conversation. Now go and sin no more. Jesus was incredibly assertive, never abrasive, but always assertive. And yet when this strong and assertive man describes himself, he does so with the words gentle and lowly in heart. That's the only time Jesus describes his heart, which in scriptures is the word used for the essence of our being, our truest self. So an incredibly powerful, assertive man who is gentle and lowly in heart. And in our minds, those two can't coexist. You must choose between strength and gentleness. But when we see how they can coexist, 
we discover the essence of meekness. And Jesus shows us the way. What we find in Jesus is a selfless strength. And this is the essence of true meekness. Not a lack of strength, but strength in service of others. What is natural to us and common in our world is strength used for self-gain, self-promotion, self-aggrandizement, self-interests. And in this way, strength benefits us at the expense of others. The kingdom posture of meekness flips that. Strength in service of neighbor at the expense of self. And when meekness is defined this way, we come to realize just how strong and noble and valiant the meek truly are. Anybody can be arrogant. It comes naturally. It's what we all do. Indeed, it's how our world functions. But meekness, strength, and service to others? This is a peculiar form of strength that is rarely found in our world, but remains the expectation of the kingdom nonetheless. And that expectation is actually a gift to us. I think it's especially important this week in particular to remind us that this is a beatitude. Jesus calls meekness a blessing. Blessed are the meek. Selfless strength is much more difficult to practice than selfish strength, but in the end, it's worth it. Because selfless strength is a blessing while selfish strength is a curse. Is there any more cursed existence than that of the arrogant? Have you ever seen a life of vanity and pride turn out well for someone? And yet, like the psalmist says, we envy the arrogant. The beautiful, the powerful, the popular, the wealthy, these are the heroes of our worldly kingdoms. And as such, they then become our envy and our ambition in life. And this ambition itself is also a cursed existence because we are faced with the harsh reality that the vast majority just don't have what it takes to excel in our world of competing strength. Look, I know our therapeutic culture tells us that we have what it takes, that you could be anything you want to be, do anything you put your mind to, but you're being lied to. You live in a selfish world of competing strength, and I'm sorry... I love you, but most of you do not have what it takes to make it in this cutthroat world of ours. And so, a world where self-promotion is valued above all else creates a framework, a cursed framework of haves and have-nots. And both of them are miserable. Those who make it realize how miserable it truly is, and those who don't make it are miserable over their failure to do so. Well, invading our arrogant world this morning comes the invitation of God's kingdom. How about a world that declares blessed are the meek? How about bowing out of the worldly competition altogether in favor of a life devoted to selfless strength? 
You might suppose that because you haven't fared well in our selfish world, you're weak and pitiful. That too is a lie. You are noble. You are glorious. You are valiant. You are a strong image bearer of God. Only that glory was made for meekness. Your strength was made for selflessness, not selfishness. And so to choose the path of meekness is not renouncing your strength, it is redeeming your strength. And in that redemption, Jesus promises you will be blessed. And I think he's right. I've yet to meet an unhappy, selfless person. And I've yet to meet a happy, selfish person. Brothers and sisters, the humble are happy. And even more so, soon the meek and humble shall reign. We've seen the kingdom posture. Let's turn now to the kingdom promise. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It's the oddest of the beatitude promises because it feels so worldly. Most of the talk in the Sermon on the Mount is about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, and so forth. But this promise is the earth. But what you must understand about the kingdom of heaven is that its destiny is the earth. When it's all said and done, we're not going to heaven. Heaven's coming to us. The kingdom of heaven will come, will overwhelm all the kingdoms of the world. The dead in Christ shall be resurrected. The glory of God will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. And finally, the prayer on earth as it is in heaven will be answered. And so Jesus is still talking about the kingdom of God. Only he is referencing the final outcome of his kingdom when heaven and earth will again be one. But there's a reason why he uses earth with this beatitude in particular. He's contrasting it with the current state of the earth. He's intentionally setting up a paradox of sorts where the meek, not the arrogant, are in charge. Regardless of your opinion on Darwin's theory, its legitimacy or limitations, he was tapping into the operating framework of our fallen world. The strong devour the weak. We absolutely do find ourselves within a struggle of dominance that only the fittest will survive. Again, I don't want to get sidetracked by whether that theory has explanatory resources for existence and life and all of that. I'm just trying to help us appreciate the paradox of this beatitude. Jesus is promising a day unlike anything we could ever imagine. The humble, not the arrogant, are going to reign. Now, that day is not now, and that's important to say. I want to be very clear with all of you for your own expectations. Meekness is not a winning strategy in our world. If you want to get ahead, if you want to be famous, if you want to be rich or powerful, I would not commend to you meekness as a strategy. Now, I do, I, I do want to say to those whom God has placed in positions of power, I say to you, we desperately need your meekness for oh how blessed we are when the meek do hold power. But chances are the life of the meek will be unappreciated, unnoticed, except by those who benefit from their meekness. But even then, they may not appreciate it. Worse yet, they may take advantage of it. Chances are a life devoted to selfless strength 
will be an underappreciated and unsuccessful life in the eyes of the world. Meekness will lead to a seemingly unremarkable legacy spent making the world look just a little bit more like heaven until you die and are buried in what will soon be a forgotten grave. But don't you pity the meek. For out of those same graves will rise the kings and queens of the earth. And the lowly and the gentle Lord of glory will crown the meek and hand them the scepter of his reign that only the meek can be trusted to wield. Now they will resist because such is the way of meekness. Beneath the weight of their unworthiness, they will say, Who am I to wear this crown and hold this scepter? I'm not qualified. And Jesus will say, That's precisely what qualifies you. Don't you remember what I said? Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And let me tell you, a world run by the meek is going to be an amazing world. I cannot wait for the meek to be in charge. I am so tired of the arrogant running things. What a miserable world that has proven to be. The ones I want in charge are those who use their strength for the good of others. And that is the promised destiny of the earth. Jesus shall reign, and he will reign via the meekness of his saints. And a world where the meek are in charge is going to be heaven on earth. And so what Jesus has done with this beatitude is turn our world order upside down by exalting the meek to the highest positions of power. Brothers and sisters, a meek existence is not a pitiful existence. Quite the contrary. The meek are destined to rule the earth. But there's a problem that you may be feeling. I certainly felt it preparing the sermon. This is great and all. Nice lesson on meekness. But how does one become meek? It's not something we can conjure up. I'm, I'm, I've decided that I'm going to be meek. I'm, I'm going to be humble. Like I prayed. Even that decision and pursuit can be turned into a self-aggrandizing, self-righteous act. It doesn't work that way. Meekness is a virtue that must be forged within us. It has to become something done to us rather than something we can self-produce. Well, the same Jesus who promises to bless the meek also creates the meek. And he does so by the triumph of his meekness. I was recently driving with my kids in the car and had the rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast on, which is not a good decision. Um, anyway, is playing that famous, infamous clip from uh, Mark Driscoll's How Dare You rant. If you've heard it, many of you have heard it. If you haven't, there was a sermon that went viral where Driscoll just goes off on his congregation, screaming at the top of his lungs, how dare you, who do you think you people are, that kind of thing, just letting them have it. And, uh, oh, and my eight-year-old son heard it and was shocked and said, Dad, who is that? And I said, well, he's actually a preacher. And Owen said, he's a preacher? Is he allowed to yell at people like that in a sermon? I said, yeah, and people actually like his yelling. 
And Owen, proving the fact that the kingdom of God belongs to children, says, but what about Jesus? Shouldn't he be telling them about Jesus? Yes. That's what the preacher should do, and I would like to do that now. Into a world where the strong dominate the weak for their own gain, I want to tell you a different story. The story where the strongest lays down his strength for the weak. Do you remember what Peter did when, uh, when Jesus was getting arrested? He pulls out his sword and attacks. That's what our world does. That's the way our world works. But Jesus says to him, Peter, put your sword away. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled? In essence, he was saying, Peter, you know how powerful I am. And if I wanted to use that power for my own dominance, that's what I would have done. But that's not what I have come to do. I have come to fulfill the scriptures which promised a meek Savior who would lay down his strength for the good of his people. Jesus is the inverse of the Darwinian struggle. We are used to the survival of the fittest, but in Jesus, the fittest sacrifices himself for the unfit. And so the omnipotent one allows himself to be arrested, falsely accused, tortured, and hung from a cross. And on the cross, they mocked him. You saved others. Why can't you save yourself? Of course, he could save himself. But in so doing, he could not save others. So bless bless his name, He chooses meekness instead. And in so doing, you and I are now saved by our Savior's meekness. But that salvation is not just something done for us. It also does something to us. Those who behold the meekness of Jesus on their behalf become meek themselves. They don't have a choice There is no room for bravado at the foot of the cross. Instead, the cross humbles us. It shows us that indeed we are poor in spirit, first beatitude. It forces us to mourn what we have done to Jesus, second beatitude. And this poverty of spirit and mournfulness forges within us the third beatitude, our meekness. When we meek, we turn again and again and again, to the meekness of your Savior. Let me pray. Lord, there is no better display of your meekness on our behalf than this table that is before us. Nothing special here, nothing seemingly powerful here in the eyes of the world, a simple taste of bread and sip of wine. And yet, Lord... What we see and celebrate and experience at this table is the most powerful, greatest story ever told. The meekness of Jesus, who is gentle and lowly in heart. Preach that message to our hungry souls, we pray. In your name, amen.